0: Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information.
1: The scripture for today's sermon comes from John 15, 9 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. This is God's word to us.
0: Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am really excited to be with you this morning, to sit in God's word with you this morning, and to talk about the love of God, which is a monstrous, um, a monstrous and eternally glorious topic. Um, So let's just pray and ask God to speak to us and uh, we'll dive into God's word together. Father, it is humbling to presume to speak about loving you and loving people in your name. But it is gloriously humbling to realize that we wouldn't know what love is if it wasn't for you. Your word tells us that you are our love, and that you loved us first. So I ask right now that you would just enable us by your spirit to behold your love. God, for, for, some, for some brothers and sisters in this room, that, that will be for the first time ever. They will encounter your love, and they will mark today as the day where you brought them from darkness to light. They'll see today as a day where they saw by your grace that they were enemies of your love, and they are now servants of your love. For others of us, that will be an encounter with your love that reorders us and reshapes us. I just ask that you would do that. (laughs) No small ask. I'm I'm aware. Help all of us to hear your word, myself included. God, make me faithful to your word, submitted to it, delighted by it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I want to start our time this morning talking about love for God and love for people by listening in to a conversation between Jesus and an attorney in Matthew chapter 22. You can turn there with me in your Bibles if you want. Matthew chapter 22 Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus replied to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What this guy was asking him was the conversation of the day. You have Jewish legal scholars that are regularly saying, yeah, we've got these 613 commandments. What's the most important? How do we slice it up? How do we boil it down? How do we distill it? Or another way they talk about it is like, what is life all about? That's the question asked Jesus. And Matthew tells us that the question wasn't posed to learn something. It was posed to trap Jesus or test him. But the question stands for us still, hey, what is it all about? What's the most important thing for you and for me as human beings? What defines our life? Let me read to you the words of an American philosopher, Jamie Smith, talking about the same subject matter, essentially. And he says this in his book, You Are What You Love. He says, What do you want? That's the question. It's the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship, and I would say the most fundamental question of your existence. What do you want? In the Gospel of John, it's the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. When two would be disciples who are caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow, Jesus wheels around on them and pointedly asks, What do you want? John 138. It's the question that is buried under almost every other question Jesus asks each of us. Will you come and follow me? Is another version of what do you want? As is the fundamental question Jesus asks of his errant disciple Peter. Do you love me? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, What do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart the epicenter of the human person thus scripture counsels above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it proverbs 4:23 discipleship we might say is a way to curate your heart To be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Are you intentional and deliberate about curating what you love? So, discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Like all those pages, Jamie Smith says, are condensed into this one reality, the kingdom of God. And it's the kingdom of God that we're laboring to point you to to live under, to proclaim with the preaching of the gospel and acts of mercy throughout our city. It's the kingdom of God that we're laboring to teach you to walk in the ways of. And and the way we summarize our efforts to advance the kingdom of God is simply this. We exist as a church to multiply gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. Like that is how we summarize what Jamie Smith gives you in those two pages. It's what many churches would say, but for us it's critical to keep like the E on the I chart in front of us. Why are we here? What are we doing? This isn't just a social club. This isn't some benevolent nonprofit in the city. This is a family of people gathered together by God, oriented around his kingdom. And so what we're doing is we're multiplying communities that advance that kingdom through loving God, loving people, and pushing back darkness. And it's at this time that we're taking just a few weeks out of our normal rhythm of preaching through a book of the Bible to talk about our mission statement. Last week, Josh talked about multiplying gospel communities. Next week, we'll talk about the realities of what it means to live on contested ground and push back darkness and acknowledge that there are real forces and principalities and powers of evil in our world. And this week, I get the delicious center of the cinnamon roll. We get to talk about loving God and loving people, and I'm like, I couldn't think of anything more beautiful or more glorious to dedicate a morning to our consideration. And in addition to giving me the opportunity to talk about what's at the center of our existence, literally, this gives me the opportunity to just play with the oddness of how we nuance the word love. Love. I actually love that in our mission statement as a church, we're inviting the, the question of like, wait a minute, do we love God and do we love people the same? Is love for God and love for people identical? Or is there something different happening? Why do we place love God first and love people second? Because the word love, man, gets used for such a wide range of meaning, Right? You can use it for basic appreciation. You can use it for preference. You can use it for, like, romantic desire. You can use it for commitment. You can even use the word, and we often do, in place of hate, which we do like this. I do not love mustard. (laughs) Well, what you mean is, no, I hate it. Don't put it near my food. It's like, how, how do we talk about loving God and loving people When love gets used so widely, but underneath it all, I think we know this. And I think this is why love is such a potent word for us. Because we know at its most fundamental level, love is about supreme devotion. Love is about ultimate allegiance. That's why we use it regularly, albeit cheeky, when we say I love pizza or I do not love corn nuts. We're we're tracing out the meaning from supreme orienting allegiance. I build my life around that. That reality, that commitment shapes and calibrates everything I do. You want to know a clearer word for love when we're talking about the essence of it? Worship. My question for you this morning is, what do you love? What do you want? What do you worship? I love this definition of worship, which is love in the sense that I'm talking about it, from Harold Best, In his book, Unceasing Worship, he says this. Worship is at once about who we are, about who or what our God is, and about how we choose to live. Nobody does not worship. We begin with one fundamental fact about worship. At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving someone or something, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers and will remain so forever. What is it that you love? What do you love? What is the controlling, defining, orienting desire? of your soul and the scary title of the second chapter if I recall of Jamie Smith's book You Are What You Love is you might not love what you think you love what do you want what do you want what do you desire supremely what do you love what do you worship that's what I want us to talk about today. And my prayer is that in his mercy and in his tenderness, God would establish himself as your one defining object of worship. God would be our supreme devotion. And and our love for God would shape our love for people. Because I'm going to argue to you, you don't love people the same way you love God. Now, some of you do. Some of you have made loving people your God. Like what you worship for some of you is the applause of people, the approval of people, like the fellowship of people. But if you love God supremely, it will actually free you to love people humbly, authentically, with no strings attached. If you love people supremely, you're always needing something from them. Thus the relationship isn't life-giving, it's manipulative. And I want all of us I want all of us to come back to the E on the I chart for Frontline Church and say, hey, we are multiplying gospel communities that love God first. Like the center of everything we are places a supreme value and desire on God and he orients every other love that flows from that. We love God and we love people because we love God. So here's my burden for us today. It's actually pretty simple. I want us to get a sense of what it means to love God and love people from Jesus' words in John 15. And then I pray that we can order, rightly order, or reorder our loves. And by the way, that's a process that happens all the time. It's why it's such a merciful thing that we gather as the people of God on Sundays. We gather at least in some sense to reorder our loves. To say, God, you are supreme above everything. God, your love is to be desired more than life itself. God, I have pursued and chased and treasured other loves. Will you forgive me? Will you reestablish yourself as my supreme desire? And then we eat the bread and drink the wine to celebrate together that he died to, to cover our lovelessness and to draw us into his love. And then we're sent out into the city to go and love our city in the love of God himself. That's why we gather. I want us to reorder or reorient our loves. And then I want to serve us, I hope, or encourage us or exhort us, I hope, by talking about our expectations when it comes to loving God And loving people. Because something this critical, this supreme, this central, this ultimate, this important, easily could set us up for disappointment if we view it wrongly. So let's look at John 15. Let's hear the words of Jesus and let's talk about loving God and loving people. John chapter 15, verse 9. Now, if you're unfamiliar with John's gospel or you're unfamiliar with the Bible, John 15 and Jesus' conversation here comes right in the middle of what we refer to as the farewell discourse. Beginning in John 13 and the end of John 13, Jesus shifts his focus. He moves away from speaking broadly to massive crowds, and he speaks in a very direct, deliberate unvarnished way to his closest band of disciples, his closest followers. This begins with a shift in scenery in John 13, and it concludes at the end of John 17 with Jesus' high priestly prayer and Judas showing up on the scene. But if you can imagine this close conversation Jesus is having with his closest followers as they're sharing the Passover meal, he's talking a lot about Love, and if you look in john fifteen nine the love he 's calling us to is both mystical and moral. The, the love he 's calling us to is mystical and moral. What do I mean by mystical? Well, he spends the first eight verses of John 15 talking about abiding in him as the one true vine, which of course, in this moment, he's identifying himself as Israel. He's like, hey, I am the one the father promised to bring blessings to the world. I'm the people of God. If you want to be rightly connected to God, you have to be rightly connected to me. And he talks about abiding in him for life and identity and sustenance the way a branch abides in a vine. And he says, you have to abide in my love. That's mystical. How do you explain that? How do you parse that out? How do you draw that in a chart? But it's not something that's merely mystical. It's also moral. He says, if you love me, you'll love what I love and you'll do what I do, and you'll do what I command you. If you love me, you will obey me. So let me just ask a basic question. What does it look like to love Jesus? What's it look like to love Jesus? something that's easy to talk about, but then when you ask somebody, like, what does that mean? What does it look like to love Jesus? And here's a place that I have gone since Jesus met me my sophomore year in high school. This is Psalm 63, the first three verses. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. How do you you love Jesus? How do you abide in his love? You acknowledge the magnitude and the beauty and the significance of his love as supreme. The way you love him is starting by saying, you have everything I long for. You have everything I need. You have everything I was created for, and I will orient my life around putting myself there. I want to be satisfied by you. I want to be bolstered by you. I want to be strengthened by you. I want to be nourished by you. I magnify God by telling him he has everything I want, and I honor him as a lover of him by coming to him to get what he has. That's how we love him. We listen to him. We delight in him. We thank him for his provision. We orient every dimension of our life around his will, his wishes, his presence, his promises. We commune with him. We pursue him. We repent when we don't pursue him. Repentance may be for some of you like a clogged up, constipated, churchy word. But do you know what it means? It's really simple. It means you turn around and walk the other way. Hey, God, I have pursued this instead of you. I will, You don't even have to use the word repent. You can just say, I'm going to walk back to you. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to rest in you. What are you looking to on the day in, day out to make you safe? When you get scared, where do you go? When you get hungry, where do you go? When you feel weak, where do you go? And the way you love Jesus is you go to him for that and you forsake everything that would get in your way for you taking in all of that. I realize it's dated, but I have always been captivated by the devotion of Robert De Niro's character in the film Heat. Any of you fans of Heat? A couple of you? There's some shy admissions. Robert De Niro is a criminal in heat, but he's so committed to a life of crime, he doesn't own any furniture. And his reason for not owning any furniture is, he says, I live by one mantra in my life. Do not have any connection that I cannot walk away from in 30 seconds or less if I feel the heat around the corner. So devoted is he to crime, he's willing to sleep on the floor His amazing, his amazing Ocean View condo. No furniture in it. And I've always watched that and thought, man, what would it look like if I was that devoted to the love of God? If I was that devoted to the mission of Jesus? Loving God looks like friendship. Look back to our passage and look at verse 15 of John 15. This is amazing, by the way. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master's doing. I call you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Loving Jesus looks like friendship. Psalm 25, 14 has arrested me over the last year. Where the psalmist says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And you read some translations and you realize like different translations are doing weird things with this. Some, some translations say the secrets of the Lord are for those who commune with them. You're like, wait a minute, that, that seems like a pretty broad gap. But, but you realize what, what they're trying to navigate is a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech. And the reason why it's translated in the ESV, the friendship of the Lord, and other people translate it to secrets, is because you tell your secrets to your friends. Like, Hey, to be friends with Jesus, to love Jesus and experience the love of his friendship is to entrust him with your secrets and receive his revelation in your own life. Proverbs 27, 9, friends receive helpful and edifying counsel from one another. To love God is to receive counsel from him. Proverbs 27, 6, I love, right? An enemy multiplies kisses, but the wounds of a friend can be trusted. The way you love God is you receive not just his counsel, but his correction. Love looks like friendship with Jesus. And with Jesus, love requires obedience. Look at verse 14 of John 15. You're my friends if you do what I command you. That Jesus is not doing in this moment the thing that I always forbid my children from doing when they were little kids. Remember the thing you do when you're little kids? I'll be your best friend if you'll give me that sandwich. <laughs> hey, if you let me play again on the Nintendo, I'll be your best friend. And for, for like from my kids' youngest of days, I'm like, man, do not be that person. Because that's not friendship at all. It's not love at all. It's manipulative. It's, it's quintessentially unloving to do that. But Jesus says, hey, if you love me, you'll do what I ask. That's him saying, not like deny yourself these other things so I can have them. He's saying it means position yourself so you can receive all the best from him. Because to do what Jesus commands is to experience life that is true, beautiful, and good. So this isn't Jesus trying to weasel you out of a Twinkie that he wants. It's Jesus trying to give you the fullness of himself. If you love me, you'll do what I ask. I had, a, I had a conversation with a friend a few months ago. We had lunch together. And in this lunch, he shared his story with me. And, and he, he named a decisive turning point in his life where he said, that moment, everything changed for me. And now I'm curious. I said, what happened in that moment? And he said, I decided I would say yes to everything Jesus asked of me. I decided I would say yes to everything Jesus asked of me. He said, up to that point, I'd said yes to everything to advance my career. And I just decided, what if I gave the same allegiance? What if I offered the same worship to the Son of God that I'd offered to my career? How how many of you are saying yes to everything that you think will give you social status? Or yes to everything that you think will give you career advancement? or yes to everything that you think will prop up your kids to be successful and maybe make you look good as mom or dad? How many of us are saying yes to everything we believe would give us money? What do you want? What do you want? What do you love supremely? The thing that gets your yes is what you love. I just wonder what it would look like if today, if today we walked out of here and said, I will say yes to everything Jesus asks of me. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The revelation of God is disclosed to those who submit their lives to him. I wonder how we would grow in prayer. I wonder how we would grow in generosity. I wonder how we would grow in spiritual power and real joy. And saying yes to Jesus involves joyfully loving people. Look at verse 12 of John 15. Here's my commandment. He says, if you love me, do what I say. If you want to be my friend, do what I say. Here's what I say, Jesus says. You love one another as I have loved you. Now, we cannot do that in a salvific sense. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins and received in his body the wrath of a perfect and holy God for our sin. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, save me as I'm saving you. He's saying, love one another as I've loved you. One scholar defines it this way. He says, love is a practical self-sacrificial commitment to serve the best interests of other people, especially for their salvation, whatever it costs us. Which Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our benefit. Jesus says we should love other people like he loved us, which by the way rightly orients our loves. It doesn't make love for people primary. It makes love for people an outflow, an overflow of our deep fundamental desire to know and be known by the one who is love, the triune God. C.S. Lewis writes this great essay. I think the title of it is On First and Second Things. And he does in this brilliant way what only C.S. Lewis can do. He's like, hey, if you take your favorite things, even good things, and you make them ultimate things, you lose all the joy that you had for them in the beginning. And he uses examples like, man, if you love pets, but you make pets your ultimate aim, you will not only lose connection with everyone else, you will lose your love in loving and caring for pets in the first place. He says, there's this order in the universe that first things have to be placed first and second things flow after that. He says, if you love secondary things, you will lose both first and second things. But if you love first things, first You'll get second things thrown in all together. It's why every wedding I've ever preached, I've looked at the bride and looked at the groom in their eyes and said to each of them, do you realize you will love her best when you love her less than you love Jesus? Do you realize you will love him best when you love him less than you love Jesus because he can't satisfy your needs he wasn't created to? So if you look to Jesus to satisfy all the fullness of who you are, it will enable you to love him authentically, powerfully, mercifully, and without cost. Now, love for people looks like something. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 verse 9, love must be sincere. It's not a vibe, it's not sentimentality, it's not just the feels or mere attraction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, Paul tells us how love meets the needs of others. I will gladly spend and be spent, Paul says. Paul says, it'll be my joy to pour myself out to meet your needs. Because God has met all my needs in Christ. Loving people looks like looking not only to my own interests, but to the interests of others. Philippians 2, verse 4. And love of others in the name of love for God looks like generosity. We're we're reminded in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, of the words of Jesus, that it's more blessed, it's better, it's more joyful to give than to receive. The most loving thing we can do for people in the name of loving people is love God more than we love them. It's love God more than we love Anything. You want to know the only way to experience fullness in your life? This is no seminar at an airport hotel. This is just like God's word to all of us, mercifully given. Like the the secret to life, the one thing is loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and understanding that out of that flows a sacrificial, joyful love for others. That's what it means to love God and love people. I mean, it's, it's everything. Now, I want to close in this way. like, to, to put that on the table is massive. It, it, it literally is the main point of your life and mine. And, and I want us to be a church that loves God like that and loves people like that. And in order to do that best, I want us to be a church that has right expectations for how we love God and how we love people. And what I mean is this. God is infinitely and supremely good at loving. God is in himself love. So for God to be loving, it's like the thing he's best at. God is is love. Therefore, God is supremely loving, and he's zealous to show love to you and me, and it doesn't stress him out or tire him out. Like, loving doesn't make God tired. God is really good at love. You and I, on the other hand, not so great at love. Can we be honest? Not so great at love. I remember I played basketball in seventh grade. Just picture that for a second. And if Steph Curry and Michael Jordan and LeBron could all really play to their full potential, that was me. Eighth grade, when football season was over and we're signing up to go to the next sport, my football coach came to me and he said, hey, I've seen you play basketball. You're not good. He said, so you can wrestle with me or I'll kill you. So I wrestled. But hey, friends, if we're honest, and surely this is a place we can be honest, we're, we're about as good at loving people and loving God as I was at basketball, age 12, which is to say not good at all. We're not good at loving people. I pulled a book off my shelf the other day, just perusing. I'm trying to figure out where the heck all my books are. And I pulled a book off my shelf I'd never seen. I was like, I don't know, someone put this book in here. I just opened it up and looked at the table of contents. I have no idea to this moment what the book is about. And I don't think I remember the title, but I remember this chapter title. And the chapter title was Mixed Field, Mixed Motives, Mixed Results. That's what it looks like to be part of a church that says, hey, our central thing that we're going to be about is loving God and loving people. Mixed field. Some of you in this room aren't lovers of God. Oh, man, I pray that today, by his mercy, that will change, or tomorrow, or next week, or four years from now, should Jesus tarry. I pray that you will walk with us long enough that the Spirit of God would awaken you to his love. But there's a mixed field in here, man. We're laboring together as the people of God, but it's a mixed field with mixed motives, right? We have weird motives for doing the things we do. And, and, and almost everything we do is tainted with something a little bit funky. And we have mixed results. Sometimes we love God and we love people in a way that like, if we're giving ourselves report cards, we're like, man, B minus, I'm doing Okay. And there's other times you're like, I'm, I'm going to get thrown out of school. My grades aren't good. But hey, I think we need to have the expectation of if loving God is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. G.K. Chesterton wrote this piece called What's Wrong with the World? And in that piece, he says, What's, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And he doesn't say that, he goes on to argue, to justify poor efforts. He says it's to justify poor results. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And loving God and loving people in his name is the supreme aim of humanity, it's why we exist. That seems like it's worth doing poorly. And I don't mean poor efforts. Or I don't mean just like phoning in. I mean like we will labor by the spirit of God and by his grace. And there are days where we will celebrate God's faithfulness in us. And there are days when we will fail. Like when we fail to love God and love people, I want us to be able to look one another in the eyes and repent. Lovelessness is a sin. Failing to, pe- failing to love people well is a sin. I want us to be able to look in one another's eyes and say, I Sin against God and you. Will you forgive me? And I want us to have the kind of expectation and the kind of love that actually offers forgiveness. It's like, hey, that hurt. Which forgiveness costs something. Can I get an amen? Forgiveness costs something. And what we do when we offer forgiveness is we will say to someone, hey, what you did or failed to do incurred a great cost to me that hurt me. I will not make you pay the debt. I'll forgive the debt because God has forgiven me immense debts. People always ask me like, hey man, what's your parenting philosophy? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm the guy to give parenting lectures. Although my son played the drums this morning, if you didn't hear that. Pretty awesome. I digress and I'm over time. But people always ask me, like, hey, what's y'all's parenting philosophy? And I'm like, "If if you put a gun to my head and say, tell me right now, it's like I expect my kids to obey and I expect them to disobey. Those are my two fundamental starting points for parenting, which means, like, we have a standard in our home. This is what's expected. And we also have provisions understanding that the expectations won't be met. What if we lived as a community that way? We said, like, I expect you to love God and to love me as he has loved you. And I expect you to fail to do both. And I will offer forgiveness to you when that happens. See, look at John 13, 35. And I'm promised, here's where we end right here. This gets quoted all the time, and I'm more and more convinced as I get older, it's misquoted. Jesus says, hey, by this will all men know, the universe will know that I've transformed you and that you are my disciples by this, right? That you love one another. And, and we, we use that as like a bat to beat people with. It's like, look how bad you failed me. The, an unbelieving world doesn't even know, but he certainly understands that we're sinful, I mean, he was about to die for the sins of the world. Surely he knew that we're going to fail one another in love. So wouldn't he have to mean, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another imperfectly and supernaturally? That my love is manifested as you repent and forgive one another. That as you walk together as a broken people, sinful people, this side of heaven will be sinful. But as you love one another imperfectly and supernaturally, people will see there's something different about them. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have loved us perfectly. Our hope doesn't hang on anything imperfect. It hangs on your perfection. And we are free to love you and others imperfectly because you have loved us Perfectly, The universe doesn't hang on our love, thank Jesus. It hangs on his shoulders on the cross. So would you, would you orient us around that? Let us find our hope in that, our joy in that, our freedom in that. And would the greatest love that's ever been demonstrated, which is Christ on the cross, be the standard of love that we aspire to and the grounds upon which we repent. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Will you stand with me?